welcome 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 back to another working another working the same working that is chrononaut chronicles my name is bill and i will be your guide on this particular sonic adventure the show is of course sponsored by mysticalwares.com that's Derek condit's online uh, well and brick and mortar shop a metaphysical supply shop and he is not here with us this evening uh, but he does have some uh he's a busy man he's got some exciting announcements to share with us next time we do get to speak with him and uh, i know that he's been working on this big project for a few months now and i can't I'm not, i don't know what i'm allowed to say about it so i'll just leave it there but uh what is it that we exactly do here on chrononaut chronicles well we've got there's four segments to the show We've got that almanac segment, the gratitude segment, silver, and then the sword segment. And the almanac segment is basically just a quick little forecast on the astrological events coming up this week in case we want to uh, practice with them or, or, or capitalize on their energies. So it's just good stuff to be aware of. And then the goal behind the gratitude segment isn't just an exercise. This is to perpetuate the heart-brain coherence that we uh, generate every time we get into the the gratitude field so um with being with this being the particular working that it is you can't have can never have too much gratitude right so very key ingredient very key ingredient in in this working and then we have the silver segment and the goal behind this is to learn something new and this does include current events even though some of us might not like to think that we uh keep up with these things uh, as as much as other people i guess i don't know there's a stigma after doing 13 questions for so long <laughs> it just seems like uh the question about what do you ignore the most in and is is media right and i think i had that same answer myself but uh current events do provide context for the world in which we find ourselves and this being a both a timely and a timeless podcast i do think that those are some things to uh, just to keep keep abreast of, right? So, aside from uh, current events, though, we do try to learn something new in the silver segment. Uh, but when we do look at current events, we try to look at the silver lining for for them. And then the sword segment is all about thinking. And I actually wanted to share with you guys a little snippet from uh, Carl Jung in his uh, explanation on what the thinking is it thinking oh i'll get it's in the book um function is right so we'll get to that in the sword segment uh, but the goal behind the sword segment is really empowerment but it's you have to do the empowering so the the this this segment is more about the method right it's a method of mental alchemy i guess if you want to call it that and so that's that is the, the sword segment. It's also uh, alluding to words, right? Swords, words. And yeah, so that covers the four segments that we have on here on the show. And so jumping back to the almanac real quickly today, Pluto and the moon are conjunct and Uranus goes stationary. Nothing happening on Tuesday. Wednesday is the full moon. This is actually the second full moon of the month. It is a full blue moon and it is a super moon so be on the lookout for that on wednesday and saturn and the moon are also conjunct on wednesday 
uh, Friday has Neptune and the Moon conjunct, and Saturday is uh, Venus goes stationary on Saturday. That's about all the almanac has planetarily, although I did see a little uh, snippet in there about the anniversary, death anniversary of J.J.J.R. Tolkien uh, coming up this Saturday in in 1973, right, is the anniversary of when he, he passed away. Uh, truly a, a wizard, in my opinion. So that's the almanac section segment. Pretty short, pretty pretty to the point. And uh, gratitudes. Man, I've got, I guess I'll go first because I've got a lot a lot to be to be grateful for we uh we had a tornado here in in town this past week uh we were a few miles south of the path but we were definitely uh you know got got the severe weather right the the tornado touched down uh just a few miles northwest of us and then lifted off a few miles northeast of what no the other way around yeah north touched down northwest and then it lifted off a few miles northeast northeast of us so uh yeah we had a huge tree fall across the the driveway and i didn't have to do anything to it all the neighbors not the driveway it was it was just the regular road right so uh, we live on a private drive up here and the we had neighborhoods of a 20 20 people i think 20 houses or so and man these guys good good neighbors they out there with chainsaws the next morning and couldn't even tell that uh you know right now if you look you know drove around the neighborhood you can tell that there was any damage at all right these it's good to have good neighbors right so i'm thankful that uh they, they took care of some of the heavy lifting for me and didn't have any property damage there was a little nick on the railing from the top of a of a skinny uh, red pine that that fell onto the deck and a few scratches on the deck, uh, fascia. But uh, yeah, no, no concrete coming up from the driveway. No roofs caving in. So yeah, super grateful that I survived the storm. No property damage. Minimal cleanup effort on my part. I did have to re you know, I did some stuff around the yard too. Right? I wasn't wasn't using a chainsaw though. But uh, yeah, that's that's one of my first my my first gratitude. The one I have written down though. In the, in the show notes that I have prepared, it has to do with a Lunar Nomad Oracle deck that I recently uh, purchased. And it's by uh, Sheehan Miro. I mentioned him on past episode in his book, uh, Lunar Alchemy. I've been going through it, and it's super interesting. Um, the first half of the book kind of explains what uh, what the idea is behind working with for the moon and then it goes into different practices for each phase and then the end of the book is just a list of uh, rituals and spells that you can use to to further to further your practice right so it's a really uh, interesting self-help explorational introspective tool to use and while i do try to pull a card a day in in uh for tarot having the oracle deck is uh specifically for you know using with the lunar alchemy book is, is really neat so i've just been really enjoying that and there is a, a concept 
that I wanted to briefly mention, but I won't do it now. Um, it has to do with the uh, Sheehan uses a, an old, uh, old, a Buddhist uh, tradition called the Shining Ones and the Hungry Ghosts to uh, kind of describe the energies that you would work with during lunar alchemy. But uh, before we get into that, I wanted to see if anybody else is uh, grateful for anything that they wanted to to share this week. I'm joined by two, just two other chrononauts tonight, Ben and Adam. So uh, any anybody have any uh, any interesting happenings to report or anything that they're grateful for? Yeah, I'm uh I'm definitely grateful for uh you, Mr. Bill, um and your uh sigil uh that you set up for me. It seems to be kicking in to high gear. Um and along that with cycles, you know, last week um you know, we had uh oh, what 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 moon was it that we that we missed? Last week was a coming out of a, a new moon coming into a full moon. So, I mean, there was two full moons this month. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah. Well, we had kind of, you know, you were looking at the show and you were like, well, you know, we've got this such and such moon. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the new moon a couple of weeks ago. But yeah. Yeah. And so, and again, with cycles, rebirth, things coming out, knowing that there is a, a hiring uh, trend that's going on out there right now, which is truly amazing. Uh, I mean, I say truly amazing. It's for me, it's amazing. Uh, but, you know, it's it's the summer, you know, it's coming along. You have all the seasonal jobs that, that are you know kicking into gear getting ready for the winter uh as summer comes to an end and you know the sigil just all that seeing how that kind of you know sits nicely in with the natural cycles the human cycle and you know the sigil getting dumped in there and yeah i had a uh interview today and i'm super 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 stoked about that one and i've got a second interview tomorrow that i'm you know not so stoked about but hey man two opportunities within a week um, after you dropping your your uh, your magic symbols out there, uh, yeah, man, I'm grateful. I, I'm grateful for all these cool little tools that we get to play around and explore with. That is awesome. Does uh, any of them have to do with in the podcast realm, or are they more? Nope not not in the podcast realm. Uh, one is in the cannabis industry, which is the one that I'm super um, interested, just because of my personal uh, benefits from migraine. Um, and it just, it seems like a wonderful position to be able to help other people in. Uh, and the other one is for a, uh, for a, uh, very popular, uh, supermarket. So. Hey, supermarkets are good gigs, especially if you get a discount, employee discounts. Token That's true. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. They definitely have uh, better perks and opportunities over there, but man. Yeah, that that industry is just one that's blossoming and really helping people out there. And that beyond everything else drives me more than anything. I even pulled some tarot cards on it. And uh, it's always it's always wonderful to see how those things really do align uh, with what you're thinking and what your intention is. So, yeah, again, there's my other grateful tarot and the tools of this magical world. It's a holographic universe. You know, now we've got some cool little controllers to kind of, you know, give us a little insight behind the curtain. Right. It's yeah. These, these little tools and it's just extra add-ons that you can choose to use or not to use. Right. It's... Oh yeah. Like, look, you're, you're using your computer. You have a task manager. You can go and kind of figure out, Oh, what's going on here. I thought it was feeling a little bit slow. You know what? I, I do see the indications here. I can just close that program. I don't have to just blindly hope and pray 
and reboot and then it's solved and i have a little bit of knowledge and then it makes you feel better because you're like oh i did see this it's not a hardware issue i don't need to clean my you know uh, thermal block uh it was just the software i killed it right here and then if it pops up you know maybe i need to uninstall and that's really all tarot is you don't need it for life but it gives you that little extra just information you're like yeah this is how i was feeling this is giving me the lens and i feel better not because i got an answer but because my will is aligning with the universe will yeah it's really neat when you get clarification or validation of what you're already feeling and then a card pops out and you know you you interpret it or read it read it read read the description or whatever and it's like oh yeah that matches that matches up pretty closely now that i can you know put a label on it put my finger on it i can you can be able to address it more or better right but, absolutely yeah and for me, it's not even necessarily making a decision. My decisions are going to be the same, but it's going, here's how I'm really feeling. And I am completely vexed on this issue. And I don't really know, like, I know what I want, but I'm not comfortable with knowing what I'm going for and I want. And then the cards come up and are reflecting exactly what you're feeling. And then you go, you know, I do feel comfortable with this decision because in my heart, it feels like the right decision, but logic and everything else but once you have a little bit of trust that um there is some sort of magic's probably uh, a good word but maybe not the most accurate word but um there is relative information that gets reflected back through your intention and in throwing the cards and even if it's just a self-reflection on your subconscious and being able to align your conscious and your subconscious that's really where it feels like to me uh, to be comfortable with the decisions and losing the angst of, am I making the right decision, making it go, this is the decision and I'm comfortable with the decision. And it's like you said, uh, validation. Yeah. I like how you put that, the relative information that's reflected back to you. That's, that's, I don't know, it struck a chord for me, but because I, I can get that in the, uh, you can find that in any deck really, but I've been able to find it in the lunar nomad Oracle deck. Like you, you can you can read tarot with a normal deck of playing cards, right? You I mean you don't have the, a normal deck of playing cards is based on the tarot. I yeah. mean it was hidden, yep. it was hidden in plain sight. You had to ditch your magical practices and everybody's doing it. Right. You just don't have you don't have the Trump suit, but you can do all the other stuff with with a regular deck. But yeah, and to me it's all intention, you know. Um uh it, the beautiful thing about tarot is that it is allegorical in its its layout. It is you know, the timeless representation of archetypes and stories. And they're just laid out. And these are things that hold true. So when you see these lines of archetypes that are aligning with your archetypal views. Um, so, yeah, you could even make your own tarot and define your own cards or have your own intention behind it. Because uh, at the end of the day, it's just a picture and it's just a card. Exactly. I mean... I think that uh, to be truly, I don't know. I just have I have this idea of making your own tarot deck with your own artwork, but I'm not an artist, right? So it's just a pipe dream for me, I guess, unless I'm going to do stick figures, which is valid too. But yeah, but listen, man, you know, just because you're into rock work doesn't mean you're going to make your own hammer. True. You know, go make your own hammer. It might not be as good as can be. You want to go to the expert on hammer makers, and then you can be the expert on the, you know, the crafting of a of a beautiful Michelangelo. 
but yeah, speaking of gleaning information out of the universe or from decks of cards or, or, or the moon, really, back, back to the cycle thing, uh, we did have a, a kind of a hiatus in, oh, Ben dropped out. Um, for the other listeners, though, we did have another hiatus of, of releases the last two weeks. Uh, we mentioned, uh, Adam mentioned before, there, were, there was a new moon. And during the phase of a new moon is is very very low energy and just to be totally honest that I, I was I was not not feeling it that Monday right and why half ass something if it's if you're not you know if it's not a hell yes then it's a hell no so I decided to take the uh, the suggestion from from this lunar alchemy book and just hibernate right just relax and uh, rest. And deal with the uh, deal with the hungry ghosts. <laughs> Speaking of hungry ghosts, I guess I will uh, talk about them them for a few seconds here and see if Ben rejoins us for gratitude segment. But yeah, she Shehan, I'm sorry, Shaheen Miro uses the. Uh, well, I'll just read it. Uh, there is a Buddhist belief called the hungry ghosts. The hungry ghosts are disincarnate spirits who've died by extreme violence, tragedy, or trauma. Or, in some instances, the hungry ghosts are the forgotten spirits of the dead no longer venerated by their families and ancestors. Loneliness and isolation turn the hungry ghosts into revenants of the past. So they roam, wander, and haunt people, looking for approval, acceptance, sustenance, and peace. Any Oh, they mean no harm or malice. They instigate chaos and conflict in an attempt to get attention. Starved for approval, they are drawn to the life force of the living in the hopes that they too will be satisfied. Imagine your shadow parts are the hungry ghosts. At some point in your life, an aspect of you was killed off, disconnected, or banished from your awareness, turned into a ghost. Now it desperately wants and needs your attention. All of its misconduct has been an attempt to make you aware of it. The hungry ghosts taunt you because they need you to offer them peace and approval. You know when a hungry ghost is around when you feel triggered or angry. You are disapproving of something or someone. Feelings of extreme hate or resentment, resentment come to the surface. You want to run away, become invisible, or avoid something. You say yes when you mean no or vice versa. That other person or situation you deeply despise or cannot stand keeps showing up. You feel out of control. This can look like depression, anger, sadness, or anxiety. So that's that's the, uh, the hungry ghosts. And this book showed up. I don't know if it was on, exactly on the new moon, but uh, I don't know, this, all the synchronicities and everything, just, you know, the way it lined up, divine timing, right? It was just too, uh, oh yeah, it, um, so where do you start in a cycle, right? Uh, Shaheen decided to start with the new, the new moon as the first cycle of the moon, right? So it's in the beginning of the book, and I was reading it, and it just happened to be in the phase of the moon at the time, and then I was lining up with everything that, that I was reading about, so yeah, that, that was, <laughs> anyway, that's a long explanation for why, why uh, there's been a brief little hiatus in our releases uh, that and Derek has been super busy as well dealing with a big project that he's working on um, 
so the other side of this coin, right, is is the shining ones. And Shaheen says that energy is never created or destroyed, it's only transmuted. So when your hungry ghosts are finally finally find peace and acceptance, they can make the transition into a luminous state or a shining one. In some cultures, they are called the venerated dead. These are the thriving spirits of those transitioned souls in the afterlife. These beings have transitioned into a higher plane of existence. No longer caught in between lives, their power and influence become balanced rather than exaggerated. According to many African belief systems, the dead become divine, and that divinity shines on the future generations who venerate them. So they guide, protect, and work on our behalf. In this context, we speak of the hungry ghosts and the shining ones as metaphoric concepts of our own energetic fragments or psyche selves. But these concepts can be seen as something literal and metaphoric. That is the nature of soul language. The shining ones reflect the power, grace, and majesty of your own divine nature. They become the intermediaries between you and the universe. Intermediate. The shining ones keep you aligned with your highest good so you can fulfill your soul purpose as an expression of the divine in the here and now. Each hungry ghost that finds peace becomes a shining one. But for all your shadows, you've always had light. So you've always been under the protection and the care of light beings. The shining ones have always been there. Can you name a time in your life where you have felt divine intervention? There is a state that I call spiritual bypass. This is the state where you give up your own divine autonomy. This is a common go-to mindset among the New Age community. The idea that something did or didn't happen because the universe made and ordained it so. This mindset robs you of your choice and possibility. Your life is yours to live, to choose, to express. When you relinquish your power of choice, you venerate the power of fate. The idea that the future is fixed, making life happen to you. However, the future is fluid. You create your own destiny. And your destiny is determined by your choices now. This doesn't negate the existence of a higher power or of other beings in the universe working for or against you, but it does change the playing field. What if you change, I'm leaving it up to the universe, to, I'm leaving it up to my own inner wisdom? What if you change, it wasn't meant to be, to, I wasn't ready? Whatever divine intervention you've received happened because of you. On some level, you summoned it. You created it. You allowed it. You hold the key to your destiny. Shadow work has shown you how pain can take you to your edge. You've witnessed the proof of your resistance and limiting beliefs. This isn't only true for the negative, but the positive experiences or blessings in your life are also proof of wanting and allowing. It is cosmic law. The shining ones are the light around you and the light within you. They are the living creation. Of your personal mastery. You know a shining one is around when you feel safe, guided, and clear. Blessings and miracles appear. Synchronicities lead you to something big. You feel good, positive, and well. Things just flow. Healing and forgiveness take place. A sense of grace comes over you. And lastly, you can observe without reacting.
pretty pretty interesting uh, Buddhist concept to work with and roll into the whole lunar alchemy uh, working that uh, Shaheen has put together. So I don't know. It's I'm really enjoying going through the book and using the deck. So that uh, I guess that that'll conclude the gratitude segment. I do not see Ben with us again. So moving on to the silver segment. I wanted to, okay, I wanted to talk, in, in the spirit of, of learning something new, let's talk about pants for a second, right? Pants. I don't, I don't, uh, we, got, we have some headlines to get to, but um, I really want to uh, cover this so we can talk about uh, you know, increasing our, our knowledge base, right? This is what segment's all about so this is uh from thinkbig.com and this is this is how pants went from being banned to required in the roman empire so a little bit of a history lesson here that was the romans fault it was it was before that real men wore togas so uh to kick us off here it says to go to a meeting with any male politician today Oh, go to a meeting with any male politician, and you're most certainly going to be standing in front of a man wearing pants, except perhaps in Bermuda, where the shorts are the nation's official dress. But in imperial Rome, things were a little different. No man of honor would think of wearing what was considered the garb of a savage barbarian. When Marcus Tilius Cicero, an eloquent orator and lawyer, was defending the former Gaul governor from accusations of extortion, he cited the wearing of pants as a sign of the innate aggressiveness of the Gauls and an extenuating circumstance for his clients. He has a quote here. Are you then hesitating, O judges, when all these nations have an innate hatred to and wage incessant war with the name of the Roman people? Do you think that, with their military cloaks and their breeches, they come to us in a lowly and submission, submissive spirit, as these do? Nothing is further from the truth. He uses breeches. I don't know if that word was that was that old breeches. Breeches. I thought that was a, I don't know, an old, more recent slang term. I still use pantyloons, so <laughs> pantalones. Think of it as the trouser defense. Good orators were using rhetoric in a rather sophisticated way. They were picturing foreign tribes in the way that mostly suited their needs from fierce aggressors to backward folks and they were relying on visual imageries to make sure that barbarian otherness would stand out says a historian from the university of california berkeley who studies rome's relationship with the tribes to the north which they collectively referred to as the barbarians the breeches breeches were in this case a powerful symbol of otherness Cicero was not alone in relating pants to a primordial, uncivilized life. In 9 AD, Ovid, by then an acclaimed poet, was exiled by Emperor Augustus for reasons that remain unclear. But what is now Thomas, but in what is now Thomas, Romania, the poet first encountered barbarians. Quote, the people, even when they were not dangerous, were odious clothed in skins and trousers with only their faces visible 
there were no particular hygienic reasons for the Roman distaste for pants, says Professor Kelly Olson, author of Masculinity and Dress in Roman Antiquity. They did not like them. It appears because of their association with non-Romans. But, but opinions change with time. And not long after, the historian and senator, Publius Cornelius Tacitus, listed pants among a range of exotic behaviors of Germanic tribes, whom he praised for having morals unweakened by civilization. River bathing, ponytails, and pants. It was, it was not as... It is not as though every person walking around ancient Rome was wearing a toga. They were more like formal wear. Tunics were the most common garments, sleeveless or short-sleeved for men and long-sleeved ankle length for women. Squeezing one's legs into stitched fabric was simply not tradition and generally demanded and, and not generally demanded by the Mediterranean climate. However, as the empire expanded, this began to change. Romans and tribes from newly annexed northern lands fought side by side to protect their borders from still other barbarians, such as the Visigoths. So military trousers, used by Germans or Gauls, became the outfit of choice for Roman troops, presumably because they're more practical on a northern battlefield, northern battlefield, than floppy, flappy tunics, floppy tunics. Flappy tunics. Evidence of this early trouserization of Roman troops can be seen in the spiral bas relief of Trajan's column, the 98 foot tall, 12 foot thick marble monument erected in 113 to honor the emperor's triumph over the Dacians, Dacians, Dacians. They were pants wearers from what is now Romania and the region around it. In that depiction, generals and other high-rank figures wear tunics or togas, while common soldiers wear leggings. Like with, the, like with GPS and the internet, innovations from the military sector slowly spread to civil society. By 397, trousers, in all their odiousness, were becoming so common that brother emperors Honorus and Arcadius of the Western and Eastern Empires, respectively, issued an official trouser ban. The ban is cited in a code named for their father, Theodosianus, which reads, Within the venerable city, no person should be allowed to appropriate to himself the use of boots or trousers. But if any man should attempt to contravene this sanction, we command that in accordance with the sentence of the illustrious prefect, the offender shall be stripped of all his resources and delivered into perpetual exile. For pants. Uh, what the ban basically does is that it bans civilians from wearing a military outfit in the capital, says Elm. So one could see it as an indirect way to make it easy to distinguish civilians from military men at a time when tensions were, were high. Four years prior, Emperor Valens had been killed in battle with Roman, within the Roman borders and a third of the army had been wiped out. So banning trousers 
could have been a way to make sure that the capital was easier to police and that fighters were kept out. The ban could also be read as the desperate attempt of a late period of late period emperors to cling to a sense of Roman identity at a time where the empire had not become or had become a melting pot of traditions after hundreds of years of expansion and cultural appropriation. Long hair and flashy jewels soon joined boots and pants as forbidden fashion. Barbarian influence on fashion was something that emperors wanted to control, but then their own bodyguards, which presumably presumably they trusted, were barbarians. So, rather than anti-barbarian, they were mostly anti-barbarian identity. Restoring concept, concepts such as purity and identity is not uncommon in fading empires. Authoritarian ways to make rulers feel in control at home in the face of external weakness. It's not clear whether the trouser ban had any impact on Roman identity or was even actually enforced. There is no legal evidence or angry letters. But 13 years after the ban, Visigoth fighters led by King Alaric violently marched into and sacked Rome, an event that most historians consider a critical shove in the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476. The ban was more or less rendered moot. Of course, pants won in the end. You can't beat pants, man. You can't beat them. By a century later, the barbarians had claimed the battle for the sartorial soul of the court of Constantinople, the only Roman court, court left. By the 5th and 6th centuries, suddenly the so-called barbarian custom, sleeved top and trousers, had become the official uniform of the Roman court. If you were close to the emperor, that's what you would wear. Scholars have not yet been able to explain how that happened, trousers going from being banned to being legally required clothes for the Roman court. That is the end of that article. So, just kind of interesting, I thought. Yeah, it, it actually, it reminds me a bit of how just uh, clothes indoctrinate you or uniforms indoctrinate you. You know, if you look at military or cults, you know, it's shaving your head. It's wearing all of the same thing. Uh, you know, it's bringing you all together to be one monolithic thing and then identifying people and putting them into different groups. It is certainly. Yeah, I don't think people realize the effects that that have just walking around in public and being able to know things about people based on how society requires that we dress because you're born in your birthday suit. But if you wear that in public, you go into jail. And there's not a choice about that. Did, you did gotta you, play the game. Speaking of, of fashion and whatnot, did you see that story about uh, Crocs being used in the movie Idiocracy? Do you know about this? It's funny that you mentioned that because I just watched Idiocracy like three or four nights ago again. Of course. But yeah, so all the shoes that they wear in the future yeah. are Crocs, right? Yeah, and before it was even a big thing. And it was like, yeah, that that movie is so predictive of the future. In fact, um, uh, Terry Crews, who plays President Camacho, 
uh, here some months ago, put together a fake uh, campaign that is absolutely hilarious, where President Camacho came back from the future uh, to run for president in 2024. President who? Camacho. Who's that? He's the president uh, of the United States, played by Terry Crews in the movie Idiocracy. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but the yeah, I think uh, it's on Hulu right now. Is it the uh, the story I was reading? I don't know if it was a story or a video, but the the set designer or the person that was in charge of making costumes or wardrobe. There it is, wardrobe for that movie wanted to find a shoe that he he or she thought was utterly ridiculous and you know just preposterous and insane and stupid that nobody would ever ever wear right because you know it's idiocracy idiots right but uh yeah the uh, he found crocs online while it was still a small company used them right and uh i don't know how many years later crocs became like a fashion statement so it's a little uh hollywood yeah matt matt judge is a uh he's He's a brilliant genius. That movie was way, way, way ahead of its time. Water, like from the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it has electrolytes. Uh, yeah, pants though, pants. Um, the uh, I I like this little comment about uh falling empires, right? The uh dropping trowel well it's, it's it's the identity thing like restoring concepts such as purity and identity is not uncommon in fading empires mm -hmm. right like we're kind of a fading empire unfortunately it's easy to see and they and they say that these these ideas these concepts like these are just authoritarian ways to make rulers feel in control like this is it's small-minded people, like small people, small-minded people. It's kind of uh, what comes to my mind. They have to feel in control. Yeah, I mean, it's the story of the emperor's clothes, right? Right. It is. It is. Well, yeah. Yeah, not not the allegory, but you know, right. feeling control based on what you're wearing. You know. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating thing. It, it, it's it's crazy how much of us do it. Like we all, we all put on the costume, the mask, the disguise that society requires of us. You you cannot be a human being. We're walking around like it's Halloween every single day, but to a different religion or a different holiday. Yeah, yeah. This is especially interesting in if you're gonna in in the light of the recent uh, pandemic 2.0 coming up. I hear that the masks are supposed to be making a comeback in some hospitals and uh, universities and office buildings. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it seems very strange that you can plan ahead for uh, viral outbreaks and start selling uh, solutions to the problem and start preemptively shutting stuff down before there's really an issue. So. Yeah, I don't want to say scam, but hey, there's a lot of money to be made. There is, it can be. Um, 
but we're not going to dwell too much on on that right now. Uh, but what we are going to talk about are these freaking aliens in Peru. Adam and I briefly discussed this last week uh, when we were going to meet to do an episode, but Derek actually had some, well, he had some food poisoning. I don't know. Oh, that's crazy. Angie had that as well. Oh. She got food poisoning, was in the hospital here. We just got out a few days ago. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know you guys didn't eat at the same restaurant, but... <laughs> Did not eat the same thing. We ate at the same restaurant. Oh, yeah, me and Derek, I think. Meant me yeah, no. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, that's that's the other reason why I we... I still know what I'm eating. <laughs> yeah, right. Those but, tarot cards are really good. Yeah, I have, I have uh, food tarot cards. Food-themed tarot cards. <laughs> um, but yeah, dude, Peru. Uh, something's happening in Peru. I put this article in the chat from Dazed Digital. Um, talks about Peruvian villagers under attack by seven-foot green aliens. Uh, this is a mind-blowing story coming out of Peru. This little, yeah, the situation has been ongoing for weeks and only just now trickled out to a few outside media channels. An entire village in Peru called Nauta says that they are being attacked and harassed every night by seven-foot-tall extraterrestrials with yellow eyes. They allegedly attempted to take a 15-year-old girl, and when she escaped, they injured her with a cut to her neck. This set off an attempt by the villagers to take their guns into the jungle to try and kill the beings. People have been found dead along the riverbanks with their faces removed. The beings are bulletproof, and when they are shot, they would go down and then get up and fly away with some kind of plates on their shoes. Some described it as a hoverboard with a red glow on their heels. They float a meter above ground. They also said the beings were wearing some kind of silver suit and would just vanish into thin air. So, what what have you what have you heard about this Adam? I know that we spoke about it briefly last week, but yeah, I haven't heard any solid updates other than listening to James Fox talk about it and how he's really looking into it. I have seen just a bunch of videos showing up of people showing luminous beating, beings and different events going down. Uh, you know, just Peru police or military, but I haven't seen anything myself that outside of the reports is um, game changing or anything, or I, I go like, this is absolutely happening. But I mean, if you just look at, you know, the historics of alien uh, visitations, or at least in the reports, you know, going back to Lonnie Zamora, um, or to the Zimbabwe case, or even, you know, going deeper into things like Fatima. Um, these are kind of stories that people are seeing and experiencing or reporting to experience. So, I mean, to me, there's a lot of people reporting and it doesn't seem like this would be a, uh, a wide scale hoax. Um, but who knows, you know, all of these phenomena overlap, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, natural phenomenons like ball lightning or ufos or ghosts or you know tricksters and poltergeists all of them seem to be um similar you know beings showing up and disappearing where they shouldn't be um so yeah I, i'm highly interested in it i can't wait to see more research being done 
Um, I know that there are UFO researchers that are actively investigating and probably going down to get some boots on the ground. Um, so yeah, I don't know, man. I'm excited about it. And maybe I shouldn't be because, you know, if they're if they're here to call the herd, then uh... <laughs> uh, harvest is it harvest time already? Is it harvest? I think so. Yeah, what was it? Uh, Linda Moulton Howe uh, wrote a book called The Strange Harvest about cattle mutilations. Mm. Yeah, those have been, the, there's a few, okay, about a month ago or so, there was a, some new cattle mutilations, some fresh ones, right? And they also had their faces removed. Now, this, this happened in America, though, if I remember correctly. But uh, I've been, I don't know, this, this, it pops up in Azazel News every now and again, uh, this story, right? And I've heard that uh, it's actually human beings on some type of hoverboard and uh, they just have this really advanced uh, technology and it just seems they makes it seems like aliens or magic right like it could be that's what uh, you know technology looked like or magic technology technology looked like magic right to to primitives uh, Primitives. Yeah, primitives. Yeah, and who knows? I mean, because there's always the private industry, there's always military industry, there's always just people doing things with advanced technology, super, super rich people. And who knows what the reason would be behind something like that? I mean, if you go back to, you know, like the, I think it's like the 20s in uh, earlier 1800s, you have the reports of ghost ships and ghost rockets. And it always seems like, you know, there's a, uh, technology that's just ahead of where we're at that's being utilized, which could be two things. It could be a phenomena that is pulling us towards something or something in which is interacting with our subconscious that's reflecting, uh, you know, a drive or a possibility of something. Uh, or it even could be, like you said, it could be people on advanced technologies. You know, let's just say, you know, maybe there is an area where they need they wanted to go out and scout mineral resources or, you know, get into places and they know they're going to be seen. So instead of making it, you know, uh, look like you're paramilitary, maybe you do wear a silver suit in a weird mask so that if you are seen, uh, you know, it's not illegal mining operations or something. Who knows? Well, that was the other bit of the, the story that that I followed or that that I observed was the mining thing. Is it? These, this apparently there's some private. I'm having trouble getting this out because maybe I shouldn't be talking about it. But uh, a private uh, organization, business company, right, has has these. Uh, it's mining for gold, and for whatever reason, they have jetpacks to do it. I don't. I don't know. It didn't really make sense to me, but that is something that I heard or read about. Um, but the other thing that's weird to me about the story is they. This girl escaped. But all they did was, and she had a cut to her neck, right? Like, I don't know if, like, if you were, if you were an advanced ET being person, like, wouldn't you have, you know, more sophisticated, you know, weaponry or ways to capture people? Like, first of all, how did she escape, right? Like, I want to hear her story. And like, why is it only just a cut? Like, why, why isn't, you know? That just I don't know. It just doesn't seem very. And this could be multifaceted. I mean, human beings are so interesting. Uh, just look at people, you know, admitting to to crimes that they never committed. You know, uh, there's people that do things like that. You could have uh, a unique event that actually happens, or some weird thing that triggered the perception that there was an alien event, and then you have other people who, you know, are believing in a reality that did not happen. 
and are uh, falling into it, you know, paranoid schizophrenics or, you know, other people. Uh, I'm not saying that's what it is, but, you know, it could not just be it's this, it's this, it's this, you know, maybe it's, you know, a few things that are mixed together. Maybe there's something in the water in Peru or something. I don't know. Hey, well, I mean, that has happened before, too, right? You know, you could, uh, you know, go back to what they linked to the Salem witch trials in which uh, there was a form of, uh, I forget what it is, but it, it basically, it grows on the rice and it contaminates the rice and it has a similar compound to LSD. So now all of a sudden you have people that start tripping out and seeing things and experiencing things that they're having spiritual, you know, events that are being chemically driven and then uh being fed by their own biases so who knows yeah i, mean, I, I wasn't there so who knows if that's an even true story but um you never know man you never know look we're all getting dosed with chemicals anyways from all the stuff we're eating you know who knows maybe uh maybe some contaminated mushrooms you know got uh filtered into the food supply right. uh that mold thing though on the rice that reminds me of that happened to like an entire village over in Europe a long time ago. I don't know if it was right. I think it was something in the bread, maybe, that made them hallucinate. It would do that. I mean, it is in wheat. Yeah. I don't, did I say rice? Yeah. If I said rice, I did not mean rice. Oh. But yeah, yeah. So I've heard about that. It's, it's crazy. Speaking of crazy, though, um, controlling the weather. Does that sound crazy to you, Adam? No. I mean, it's been going on forever. It has not, not to steal the show, but you can go back to California, like, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, where people were doing controlled burns of forests and fires because you can have the smoke and precipitate uh, the smoke blowing down range in certain areas and triggering, uh, triggering rains and things like that. Uh, also look at what they've done. They do in Dubai, look at what they did in the Olympics with clearing up the air and causing it to rain. Um, you know, insurance companies uh, in, I know, Canada and places like, was like Toronto or something would seed the sky ahead of uh, hailstorms uh, with like silver iodide because it was cheaper for them to run that operation and drop the hail early than it would be for them to uh, pay for insurance claims for broken uh, vehicles and property. Um, so the stuff has been going on forever and we do it uh, all the time anyways. You know, uh, you don't even have to go into chemtrails. You just have to look at 9-11 and the exhaust that's being put out by jets and the fact that the Earth's uh, global temperature rose, you know, uh, by a measurable amount of like a degree or two after all the planes were landed. And that's because you're not putting up the particulates. You're not putting up that exhaust. You don't see those contrails and they are reflecting back a measurable amount. So, I mean, it's going on. It's been going on. That's only the stuff we know about. So. I mean, I'm sure they're trying to Mr. Burns the world. Yeah, like this is a uh, weather weather modification isn't I, I don't know. I just I have this. It's not uh, a, it's not a new thing. Not, but so, it's very not, very old thing. But it's it, it's it's it's, it's it's tied up under the you know uh, conspiracy theory. It is. It's like, it's look, I'm not telling you that there's you know every single plane you know has jets and nozzles out the uh, uh, sticking out the outside. But planes fly through the air, they have exhaust, there are additives put into uh, fuel mixtures, and that stuff does go back into the atmosphere and reflect stuff back, plus whatever other programs are doing. And now you're seeing it in the news, they're actually talking about wanting to 
openly cede the atmosphere to reflect. There's even people that talk about the idea that the U.S. military may be doing this with metals uh, in certain areas where they're working with like harp systems or some sort of radar scanning system where uh, by having a light coating of metallic particles or particles in the air, you're actually able to get 3D scans of environments live. Uh, so, you know, there could even be just ultimate mapping or tracking or control. And just look at the biggest polluters in the world. You know, it's it's the military. The military pollutes more than, uh, you know, every corporation in the U.S. combined. So. Um, and the military, actually, well, kind of like pants, right, started in the military and it's trickled down to the uh, civilian world. But uh, this, it started with, oh, this is... That's uh, why I'm wearing my podcasting pants in protest. I'm, I'm, I've got shorts on. You're wearing pants in Florida and I'm wearing shorts? No, no, that's the joke. My podcasting pants is, uh, I forgot to turn the air conditioner on before I came into the studio and it's like 90 in here. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the podcasting pants is lack thereof. Shorts, right? Shorts. That's or, what I'm telling everybody, shorts. Mando Monday, maybe? No, 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 no. Oh, my God. I'd get glued to the chair. <laughs> anyway, this article is from PopSci, and it's uh, with Operation Popeye, the U.S. government made weather an instrument of war. And this this all happened during Vietnam. So I put the link in the chat there for you, Adam. You want to look at it? It says it was a seasonably chilly afternoon in 1974 when Senators Claiborne Pell, Democrat from Rhode Island, and Clifford Case, Republican from New Jersey, strode into the chambers of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations for a classified briefing. While the meeting was labeled top secret, the topic at hand was rather mundane. They were there to discuss the weather. More specifically, Pell, a chairman of the now-defunct Subcommittee for Oceans and International Environment, and his colleague, uh, where did I, I lost my spot? Uh, we're about to learn the true extent of a five-year-old cloud seeding operation meant to lengthen the monsoon season in Vietnam, destabilize the enemy, and allow the United States to win the war. Though it cycled through several names in its history, Operation Popeye stuck. Its state of objective, stated objective to ensure Americans won the Vietnam War was never realized, but the revelation that the U.S. government played God with weather-altering warfare changed history. The Nixon administration distracted, denied, and it seems outright lied to Congress, but surprising Interbuts, enterprising reporters published damning stories about rain being used as a weapon, and the Pentagon Papers dripped classified details like artificial rain. Eventually, the federal government would declassify its Popeye documents, and international laws aimed at preventing similar projects would be on the books. But in the public world, more or less, oh, but the public would forget that it ever happened. Uh, given the rise of geoengineering projects, both from municipal governments and private companies, some experts believe Popeye is newly relevant. Most travel agents would recommend planning your visit to Vietnam roughly between the months of November and April. Prices tend to jump during the so-called high season, 
but it's the only surefire way to avoid the rain. Between roughly May and October, the mercury rises to 90 degrees and the temperature can, or the humidity can hit 90%. Heavy with water and churned by reversing monsoon, monsoon winds, the northern metropolis of Hanoi typically receives 8.2 inches of rain in July alone, while Ho Chi Minh City in the south, where the monsoon hits a little later, racks up an average 11 inches each September. For a comparison, the southeast, southwestern state of Arizona typically gets 8 inches of rain a year. Back in the 60s, however, Vietnam's rainfall patterns weren't the concern of the American tourists so much as the American military. When, excuse me, when preliminary tests for Operation Popeye began in 1966 under LBJ, the Vietnam War had been underway for over a decade though still a decade away from its somber conclusion. More than 8,000 Americans had already died. With traditional methods failing, the U.S. government decided to look to the skies. The close monitoring of troop and truck traffic along routes where rain had fallen verified, beyond any doubt, the naturally adverse effects of rainfall and accumulated soil moisture on the enemy's logistic effort. Lieutenant Colonel Ed Soyster told Senators Pell and Case, according to the declassified notes from that meeting in 1974, Operation Popeye intended to further ruin roads, jam rivers, and extend the amount of time swaths of Vietnam weren't traversable. Cloud seeding is a method for artificially stimulating precipitation, like rain or snow. The practice is thought to have the practice is thought to have originated in 1946, with experiment while experimenting with dry ice. Vincent Schaefer, self-taught chemist employed by General Electric, made a big discovery. He noticed that cloud condensation nuclei, the tiny particles around which water condensates, could be artificially produced to create rain and snow. Schaefer put his discovery to the test by seeding the clouds over the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts and successfully created precipitation. He was hailed as the first person to actually do something about the weather and not just talk about it, the New York Times wrote in his obituary. Of course, Schaefer's discovery was not met with enthusiasm alone. While some dreamed of ending drought, others worried that rain could be stolen as scientists pulled precipitation out of clouds in some places and not others. At first, no one seemed to consider the wartime applications of cloud seeding, but on March 20th, 1967, the operational phase of Popeye began. Pilots and their crews would soar over select regions of Vietnam with a canister of silver or lead iodide, which were, by the 1960s, considered two of the primary sources of water condensation nuclei. The planet, the planet, the plane crew would ignite the canisters and release particle-rich smoke into an existing storm. If it all went well, the jolt of artificial nuclei would reverberate through the system, forcibly spurring additional precipitation. Despite 80 years of cloud seeding efforts, rigorous research aimed at proving or disproving its efficacy is still underway. During their top-secret briefing on Popeye, Senators Pell and Case were told that, though taxpayers paid 
without their knowledge, some 3.6 million a year for such operations over Vietnam, Popeye's success was certainly limited and also fundamentally unverifiable. As he digested these facts, processed the full extent of the secret wartime weather manipulation project, Senator Pell seemed increasingly indignant as documented in the official meeting report. Why, he asked, was it kept secret? And what other secrets were there? The thing that concerns me, he said, is not rainmaking per se, but when you open Pandora's box, what comes out with it? When the details of Operation Popeye were made public a month or two later, on May 19, 1974, many Americans, as well as our allies and enemies abroad, were left pondering the same question. As you read this or listen, someone somewhere is probably seeding a cloud. State and city officials seed clouds in the Sierra Nevada each winter. It's a way to make a little money from ski resorts that pay for the potential of an extra sprinkling of powder. But it's also a coordinated effort to increase the water supply that flows from melting snow each summer and quenches the thirst of California and its neighbors in the Colorado River Basin. And local officials from Wyoming to Mumbai carry out summertime seeding to provide rainfall for farmers. Meanwhile, the Chinese Meteorological Association is the world's biggest cloud seeding operation, reportedly creating billions of tons of rain each year. That's with a B. Billions with a B. To the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. These peacetime efforts are perfectly legal. But after the details of Operation Popeye went public, legislators began to push for an international treaty that would ban weather modification from being used in warfare ever again. As is so often the case, the law originated in the United States among the very people who had been secretly testing and arguably benefiting from the technology in the first place. U.S. officials approached the former Soviet Union about an international agreement which passed through the United Nations in 1976 and entered into force in 1978. It's called the Environmental Modification Convention. The international treaty bars any action undertaken by military or otherwise hostile forces that could result in earthquakes, tsunamis, an upset in the ecological balance of a region, changes in weather, weather patterns, clouds, precipitation, cyclones of various types, and tornadic storms, changes in climate patterns, changes in ocean currents, changes in the state of the ozone layer, and changes in the state of the ionosphere. The convention is, in effect, so comprehensive it bans many forms of weather modification that, at least according to publicly available knowledge, do not yet exist. While, there is, while there's an elaborate 12-step wiki how for a tornado in a bottle, storms don't appear to be that easy to create, or, for that matter, stop in the real world. Cloud seeding, if and when it works, is successful only because it piggybacks on existing weather rather than creating new storm fronts from scratch. Uh, Deborah Gordon, director of the Energy and Climate Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, 
says the convention is ultimately toothless. You don't even know where to look, she says, of current weather manipulation efforts. There is a lack of transparency in the research. We don't even know what people are working on. You can't govern something you can't see. And that's for peaceful, oh, that, that is for peaceful applications. Without the ability to measure these modifications, the medical, the medical, the environmental modification convention or any other weather-related treaty is nearly impossible to enforce. How will we know what, that there aren't Operation Popeyes going on or not? She asks. Given our inability to monitor these activities, there's reason to be concerned that the United States or other nations could be quietly volatile. <laughs> People could violate the terms of the convention, right? Uh, but, Gordon says, the more pressing question is whether thousands of small-scale environmentally modification projects already underway will eventually add up to global impact. It didn't matter that there was no transparency because there were so few projects, Gordon says, of the 20th century. But in the last decade, she says, the uptick in, in experimentation in terms of climate engineering has not only picked up from the government's point of view, it's now picked up in private space. A Bangalore-based company, the consulting company, uh, leads the rainmaking project in Mumbai, for example. Uh, technicians were, in turn, trained by the North Dakota-based Weather Modification, Inc., which has had a hand in weather modification efforts from Mexico to Morocco. In recent years, we've also seen the move beyond privately-led weather-altering schemes to climate-altering ones big corporations like Shell, as well as dozens of smaller startups like Carbon Engineering, have developed and begun to implement carbon capture technology. While these peacetime projects are all intended only to benefit the local community, they've become so widespread that they could have an effect at a planetary scale. If there is enough local weather modification, at what point does that add up to more than some of its parts? And lastly here, uh, most of the officials involved in Operation Popeye are now dead. And while weather modification is real and the subject of tropes of scientific literature, it also fuels endless conspiracy theories from the Cold War era concern that the Soviets could control the temperature of the globe to contemporary Infowars stoked fears of weather-wielding superpowers. But the real concern, says Gordon, is our rapidly changing climate and its effect on global water systems. A Cape Town, uh, as Cape Town stares down the end of its water supply and floods and droughts destabilize communities all over the world, we're starting to realize how little we know about the atmosphere. New climate-altering technologies will continue to crop up, but instead of providing us with easy answers to our biggest problems, they, uh, these developments should seed new questions. So, more questions. Always ask questions. Uh, I like how this article hits on the lack of transparency. It, we don't know what exactly is going on in the private sector or the military sector. Well, the but, private sector doesn't have to tell you. Right. Sure. Or they have little incentive to tell you. But think about this. I mean, what's the incentive? 
you have in the stock market future sales and future uh, like futures not a stock market expert but they're done on crops so if i can impact the future projected of a crop and what's going to happen whether i make it boom or fail there is an incentive to make money there and you know just look at anything else that seems like a terrible idea um you know bioengineering for weapons uh, you know, all the stuff that's been accused of the NIH or the Wuhan labs or dozens of other facilities that are actively doing gain, gain of function research, trying to make things stronger and better outside of the natural environment. And if there's incentive for people to do those as protective measures, right? So you can go kill a billion people. Um, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't some really, if you're willing to do that, What's starving a few people to make some bucks for political influence, for destabilizing a government and its people? You know, uh, if you're willing to go to war over these things, it seems like not to me, but it seems like, you know, the argument would be a much cleaner, uh, you know, your fingerprints aren't there, but you still destroyed the uh, the enemy. And, you know, just we don't know what technology is going on, what advancements have been made in that sector. And. You know, who knows? You know, maybe it has gone beyond cloud seeding. Maybe there is something to some sort of harp uh, system that is using the ionosphere to impact, uh, you know, weather changes. I'm open to it. Yeah, I think I think the harp that everybody thinks about in Alaska is actually no longer in commissioned i think it's been um you know i'll have to look at this i know that when they said it was no longer in commission i do believe that they were still doing some research out of that facility um and you know my understanding there's not just one and every country well, has their version of this system so yeah but there is a there, I, speaking of them still being around i don't know if it's harp exactly but there was a recent uh, whistleblower that came forth during this whole uap congressional uh shindig going on but he was interviewed on uh, aubrey martin that was not aubrey martin. it was another podcast i listened to i can't remember the name uh, but he was essentially saying that there is a scalar uh, array in antarctica and it works yes. like harp ish well with, uh, yeah so he was saying that it, it was uh, a harpish like uh facility that was able to uh detect some sort of um it was an interstellar particle of some kind. I, I, I'm going to say muon. It's probably not that, but it's some sort of, it might even be muon. But regardless, it's some sort of particle that they are testing for. But the thought was like, look, so here, here's the dual part. This is actually a detecting system, but it's being masked as a system that can detect uh, some sort of particle output from UAP, a technology of propulsion. And in addition to that, it has the ability to project an energy within that same uh realm to be able to down these craft so uh essentially he was saying look this is a uh earth defense or technology reconnaissance system and or monitoring system so yeah that that was an absolutely fascinating uh uh idea because i've always said you know uh, i i'm of the opinion that there is a secret base or secret military tech on the moon for two simple reasons, both human and both from outside. Looking at the the uh, amount of evidence through 
uh, NASA photos and uh, military uh, radar data, and not even just the reports, just, you know, the solid stuff that we have out there. There appears to be some things that come from outside of our atmosphere, outside of, you know, the planet that we don't know what they are that come to Earth. And if that threat is there, why would you not have outward facing technology to detect these things? And then secondly, I mean, if you're going to have, you know, satellite weaponry, you know, rods from gods, uh, you know, uh, do research into space based laser systems like the Star Wars project, um, it seems like putting a base on the moon where you can have hardware is just a no brainer. And, uh, you know, the Air Force has, you know, one of the largest space programs. They've been running a secret space program that we know of, at least with the X-7B, I think it's called. Uh, the craft that goes, you know, disappearing for over 800 days at a time. Nobody knows where it goes. Completely unmanned, you know, uh, has a, you know, a bay the size of like, you know, the shuttle, the shuttle bay inside of it. So it's only logical that uh, that there is way more interest in this than they're mentioning. And actually, to tack onto that, Bill, I'm going to pull this up. I didn't realize there was an update on the Peru. I don't want to get too too much excitement on this because you know every few years. Uh, you know, uh, Peru has done deals with uh, the U.S. Uh, military for, uh, you know, space or the space program and sharing of information. But in light of the Peru, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, supposed invasion, yeah. uh, I've got a, an article here from spacenews.com. U.S. Space Command at offer, um, I'm sorry, announces new cooperation agreements with allies. One of those agreements was with Peru, which was this article here is listed as April 20th, 2023. So right here in the heart of all of these reports. And let's see what they have to say. U.S. Space Command has also inked new agreement with the Peruvian National Commission on Aerospace Research and Development, C-O-N-I-D-A as an acronym, and the Peruvian Air Force. This was a space situational awareness data sharing agreement signed by Dickinson and Lieutenant General Carlos Enrique Chavez Contierno, Peruvian Air Force Chief of Staff and Peruvian Air Force Major General Jose Antonio Garcia Morgan, another officer uh, in this uh, condit or he was I'm sorry, he was the condit director, Con C-O-N-I-D-A. Uh, this agreement, too, was signed at the Space Symposium. The U.S.-led data sharing program enhances the safety, stability, security, and sustainability of space flight, flight for all. The command has established 170 space situational awareness sharing agreements with partners from the commercial sector, academia, foreign, and intergovernmental agencies that share views about responsible behaviors in space. So, like so many other things, uh, we might have if there's people that are saying that uh, we had a nuclear agreement um, with a, a nuclear proliferations agreement with Russia that was signed. And people are saying that that was then uh, revised. And it's actually you can see it. I forget the exact wording, but basically saying if any anomalous objects or anything were discovered, that we would be researching them together jointly. And, you know, this could be one of those things where you're kind of. Uh, obscuring the agreement in plain sight you've got something suspicious going on we'll help you out
it's 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 these things like uh, who knows if this treaty's actually been upheld right kind of like the pants ban banning thing but uh when when countries work together like behind the scenes there's a concept called brother bear diplomacy that uh Zazel talks about and it's basically that you know there's two types of there's two wars that are going on right now there's the war that the public knows about right that the white world knows about that everybody in the mainstream is aware of but then there there's also a war uh for humanity right and there there are powers that are working in conjunction uh, human powers together that are made up from different countries right that you would think would typically you know work together but for instance like uh russian uh special forces uh spetsnaz trained with green berets in uh cold weather applications in i don't know like colorado or alaska a few years ago but uh yeah so it's like uh we're supposedly we're not officially at war with russia right but uh never been our our, our close allies since world war ii even then it was ten you know ten tentative tenuous um but yeah so uh and then recently actually up in the aleutian island area there's a there was a large uh, chinese navy presence and uh we sent up some of our boys too over there so something fishy is going on is going on up in alaska too with uh i think russian russia had their naval naval ships over there as well but uh yeah uh china russia america uh bears uh especially in space because i think that uh adam is onto something with the, the space station um when when a uh messing with my pop filter here excuse me um let's see what they can regard correctly uh when a american goes up to space they're they're called uh grizzly bears uh, when a russian goes up he's a polar bear uh when a chinese cosmonaut goes up they call them uh panda bears and then they uh, in a in a rare occasion a uh, australian gets up there they are affectionately uh, referred to as koala bears so there's a whole class on this on the telegram channel if listeners want to go check it out it's called brother bear diplomacy and there's some other interesting examples given so just uh i don't know i like that i like that concept because it's uh I don't know, it's kind of reassuring, I guess, that there there are good things happening behind the scenes that we don't know about in the in in the black world projects, you know? Oh yeah. Well listen, it's like everything else. You know, you just have groups and people that have power and uh uh, uh what am I trying to say? Like drive, intent. Uh they have a goal. And it's not always gonna be aligned with my goal or your goal. You know, without diving into politics, just look at Maui. You know, you know, we're giving billions of dollars to oversee company or oversee a nation to fight a war. And we have an absolute catastrophic natural disaster that was fueled by mismanagement of the, the infrastructure. And people are being offered $700 a piece. And, you know, that's it. So, I mean, that seems like the American people, the American government would not be aligned with that type of thinking. But yet it's still happening. It's still going to get done. Those massive dollars are being 
uh, fueling somebody else's beliefs and ideology or political views. Um, and it's just how the system is. And having said that, on the flip side, I can't think of any right now within the news, um, but there are also great and good things that come along that the government does that they can fuel. But it's like people, you know, you get a group of people together, you know, room of a thousand people, there might be somebody in there that tries to take advantage of you. There's probably also somebody that's going to give you the shirt off their back and they're all always going to be there. And in as above, so below, like as the economy, the world, the government, you know, uh, you know, uh, become a world leader, uh, you can knock a plane out of the sky and, you know, openly talk about it and you just got to deal with it. What was that thing that Trump said you could shoot someone in the face on Fifth Avenue and you get away with it? Like, <laughs> I didn't hear that one. Yeah, it's one of his quotes. Two-tier justice system for sure, but unrelated. Um, yeah, the uh, the weather has been a uh, a theme for us here on this show so far. So, in continuing with that. Our next story has to do with uh, lightning. And this will be the last one that we cover this episode. And then we'll get to actually, we're going to read from Charles Handel today. I was going to do the Sabbath um, according to Neville Goddard, but Ben isn't here with us. So kind of saving that for him. I will hear from Charles for the first time in the show. But before that, um, last story about lightning's electromagnetic fields may have a weird healing effect on living cells. This is from newatlas.com. I think I put that in the chat for you. Yep. Uh, you definitely don't want to be on the receiving end of a lightning strike, but in the right doses, this stuff may have a healing effect. A new study from Tel Aviv University suggests that the electromagnetic fields given off by Lightning activity around the world could protect living cells from certain kinds of damage, which may have had implications for the evolution of life on Earth. At any given time, there are some 2,000 thunderstorms raging somewhere on Earth. The energy from those constant lightning strikes resonate through a cavity between the Earth's surface and the ionosphere. These are known as Schumann resonances, and they in turn produce extremely low frequency. ELF, electromagnetic fields. For as long as life has existed on Earth, it's been bathed in these incredibly weak fields, but they are generally not thought to have any real impact. But in a new study, scientists found that these fields could be exerting influence on life after all. Thankfully, though, it's a good thing. We found that under controlled conditions, the Schumann resonance fields certainly had an effect on living tissues. The most important effect was that the atmospheric ELF fields actually protected cells under stress conditions. In other words, when biological cells are under stress due to lack of oxygen, for example, the atmospheric fields from lightning appear to protect them from damage. This may be related to the evolutionary role these fields have played on living organisms. In their experiments, the researchers recreated the kinds of magnetic fields produced by Schumann resonances, and cultures of rat heart cells were exposed to them. 
within 30 to 40 minutes of exposure uh, to fields within frequencies between 7.6 and 8 hertz, levels often found in nature, the cells changed in several beneficial ways. There were reductions in spontaneous con contractions, calcium transients, and the release of creatine kinase, all three of which are measures of damage to heart cells. When the fields were switched off, these cells were found to revert back to their original state. But of course, the study was only conducted on rat heart cells in culture, so the results may not apply to other organisms or even living rats. But it's still an interesting bit of evidence linking the effects of global lightning strikes to the evolution of life on Earth. It is the it is the first study that demonstrates a link between global lightning activity in the Schumann resonances and the activity of living cells. It may explain why all living organisms have electrical activity in the same ELF spectral range. And, and it is the first time such a connection has been shown. This may have some thera therapeutic implications down the line since these ELF fields appear to protect cells from damage. But this requires further research. And the study was published in the journal Scientific Reports. So, I like this because I recently, I recently downloaded a Schumann resonance tracking app on my phone. So now every time it spikes above 22% uh, from of the normal range, I will get a push notification. Very cool. I find that interesting uh, from two perspectives. Uh, the first being that, you know, I, I think of the earth as an entire ecosystem and, you know, uh, the as above, so below. The forest is going to burn. When cataclysm comes back to earth, one of the things that Dr. Robert Schock talks about is how deserts were uh, turned into glass, that there was so much lightning uh, being discharged from the atmosphere that it would be like the rain from a hurricane coming down. Um, which, if you think about it, if the world is both scorching and cleansing itself, but it doesn't want to completely sterilize, it might also, while scraping the surface, also for the pockets and the places of safety where people have held to give them a natural immune boost within the system, a way of nature protecting itself, an immunological response um, for the inhabitants of Earth. And then the second that I find absolutely interesting in this is uh, I have not finished it. I just found an Andrew Herber Huberman video on um, migraine, and they've done a small study on migraine, uh, which is very, very uh, deeply important uh, to me because I afflict and suffer from it, um, but where they were using high dose of creatine supplement after um, like uh, concussion. Uh, for reducing headaches in people by up to 90%. It's a very small study, but you have people reporting, um, you know, like uh, 80, 90% headache uh, reduction down, down significantly. Um, so uh, it has not been studied in other type of migraine, um, but considering the safety of creatine, I am absolutely, it's on my list of things to, to try out. Uh, and you just mentioned it there that you get an increase of um, of creatine production, which I also find interesting because 
you know, electrical issues on the earth with solar storms, with different events when we are having like proton storms, there are statistically trackable um, uh, increases in events like psychiatric, psychiatric events, um, um, uh, heart attacks, stroke, different things like that, that, you know, are connected to an electrical system within your body that's interfacing with uh, the field of the earth. So I find that highly fascinating, uh, that connection. Yeah, it's it's also interesting to think about how our, I mean, our bodies are electrical too. Like we, our nervous system, it runs off electricity. I mean, it's electrical. So of course there's going to be some kind of, like Isn't it amazing? There's effect. magnetic. There's magnetic fields all around us. It drives the human body. It drives life on this planet. It drives the cycles of where animals are traveling to. The the natural cycles of Earth. Um, uh, it's seen on all the planets. The sun. There's propagating. You know, waves connecting. But yet, we do not live in a uh, electric universe. Mainstream science says as soon as we leave this solar system or this earth, it is done. There is no connection. And to me, I'm like, well, again, as above, so below, you know, take the wave pool, you know, you can use the ocean or you can use, you know, a few thousand gallons of water and still see the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think about, um, electricity and there is, a type of intelligence, I would I would argue, behind whatever this power is, and and I think that uh, it is absolutely uh, mental. Uh, our our brain generates, you know, synapses and and electrical pulses that regulate all the systems of our bodies, and those are turned off and on with thoughts, right? And this brings us right into the sword segment, and. Uh, before we get into Charles Hannell talking about mental medicine, I did want to re rehash the uh, the goal behind the sword segment. Um, according to to Young, right? The thinking there's four. Let me get to my page here before I start just talking. Fifty. Uh, The uh, young Charles Young Yuck Carl Carl Charles was that his first full name? That was Carl Carl Young. Uh, four type three types. Uh, when you're coming up with these uh, personality tests, right? And uh, in in tarot, the air element is often associated with swords. And this has to deal with the thinking aspect. And uh, thinking, there's four aspects, right? Four four elements. You got earth, water, air, fire, and corresponding to those is thinking, intuition, sensation, and, and feeling, right? So when I was putting together this the sword segment, I was really bouncing back and forth between the thinking and the feeling function. So what I'm going to do is read a brief description of each, of, uh, according to Carl Jung, of what each of those are, right? And then Adam, I want to get your opinion on if the segment 
should be called the sword segment or if it should be called the staff segment to to uh, symbolize feeling and, and fire as opposed to uh, thinking in air but i think my opinion is is i think i nailed it with with the uh, the air element but uh, according to oh this comes from robert place's uh, book the tarot magic alchemy hermeticism and neoplatonism second edition but he's quoting um carl jung in this particular section on thinking he says all people think but the thinking function is intellectual or analytical it asks why or what is reality this is a decision making function jung says the term thinking should in my view be confined to linking up ideas the term thinking should in my view be confined to linking up ideas by means of a concept in other words an act of judgment thinking is forceful yet intangible like air and therefore related to the suit of swords the introvert may tend toward the role of a philosopher or research scientist and the extrovert towards uh, economist judge or statesman justice represents the search for truth in the stoic version of platonism the study of mathematics was recommended to develop this virtue so this would be in contrast to feeling right thinking and, and feeling air and fire uh, feeling this name is often misunderstood to young feelings are not emotions he calls emotions effects and that they can arise from any function feelings do not create effects in the face or body they are much deeper than emotions young says it is advisable to distinguish effect from feeling since feeling can be a voluntary disposable function whereas effect is usually not okay. feeling is a decision-making function that determines if something is good or bad as young says feeling imparts to the content a definitive value in the sense of acceptance or rejection like or dislike feeling motivates one to action which is symbolized by fire in the suit of staffs crying and yelling are displays of emotion hate is a feeling joy and laughter are emotions love is a feeling an introvert may display a talent as a healer a nurturer a musician or a monk an extrovert may become a okay so the whole thing about personality tests is is um not applicable to my current query but uh yeah there's definitely like a mix i would say between between the two and uh, the reason why i was leaning towards uh the thinking function in the air and the suit of swords is because we're we're really delving into the the why or what is reality i would like to think right <laughs> i think you nailed it yeah yeah go because the other thing is i don't want to tell people how to feel like you make that up you, you know make that decision yourself right but we can certainly talk about what is right thinking right you know i mean can't we you know there's certainly a method to it which we're which we've been exploring right 
So, yeah, I don't have to tell you how to feel happy, but I can tell you if you smile, good chance you're going to start to feel more happy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the happy, you're going to feel you're going to smile. So there's, there's a magic in between. We don't have to tell you what it is, but uh, we can help you smile. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that uh, I just wanted to rehash just to make sure that I got all my ducks in a row. And I want to make sure that I'm doing everything correctly label you know not misguiding anybody with this working but uh yeah the other two sensations have to deal with uh well so earthy like you're feeling like so that's not really that hard to describe but uh yeah no i think we we, we landed on the right one with with swords and, and air So that brings us to Charles Hannell. Super excited to share this with you guys because uh, to me, when I read this, I, I, uh, I, I read it in, in the voice of a mixture between Earl Nightingale and uh, Robert Monroe. <laughs> so if, if you've ever heard of... Uh, those two gentlemen uh, talking at all. This is a kind of the voice that is in my head when I'm reading this stuff. This is Bill's so, inner voice. It is. It is. It's an amalgamation of all these different people. But uh, I don't know. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to do my best with this with this reading. It's it's not long. It is uh, maybe about two and a half pages. But this is a chapter fourteen of the new psychology by Charles F. Hanel, H-A-A-N-E-L. And he uh, starts off with a quote. All that a man does outwardly is but the expression and completion of his inward thought. To work effectually, he must think clearly. To act nobly, he must think nobly. Intellectual force is a principal element of the soul's life and should be proposed by every man as the principle of his being. That's by Channing. That's the only name he gives. C-H-A-N-N-I-N-G. So, uh, moving on. In The Law of Mental Medicine, Thomas J. Hudson says, Like all laws of nature, the law of mental medicine is universal in its application." And, like all the others, it is simple and easily comprehended. Granted that there is an intelligence that controls the functions of the body in health, it follows that it is the same power or energy that fails in case of disease. Failing, it requires assistance, and that is what all therapeutic agencies claim or aim to accomplish. No intelligent physician of any school claims to be able to do more than to assist nature to restore normal conditions of the body. That it is a mental energy that thus requires assistance, no one denies. For science teaches us that the whole body is made up of a confederation of intelligent entities, each of which performs its functions with an intelligence exactly adapted to, to the performance of its special duties as a member of the Confederacy. There is, indeed, 
no life without mind, from the lowest unicellular organism up to man. It is, therefore, a mental energy that actuates every fiber of the body under all conditions, that there is a central intelligence that controls each of those mind organisms is self-evident. Whether, as the materialistic scientists insist, this central intelligence is merely the sum of all the cellular energies of the bodily organism, or is an independent entity capable of sustaining a separate existence after the body perishes, is a question that does not concern us in the pursuance of the present inquiry. It is sufficient for us to know that such intelligence exists, and that, for the time being, it is the controlling energy that normally regulates the action of the myriad cells of which the body is composed. It is then a mental organism that all therapeutic agencies are designed to energize when, for any cause, it fails to perform its functions with reference to any part of the physical structure. It follows that mental therapeutic agencies are the primary and normal means of energizing the mental organism. That is to say, mental energies operate more directly than any other, because more intelligibly upon a mental organism. Although physical agencies are by no means excluded, for all experience shows that a mental organism responds to physical as well as mental stimuli. All that can be reasonably claimed is that in therapeutics, mental stimulus is necessary, is necessarily more direct and more positive in its effects, other things being equal than a physical stimulus can be, for the simple reason that it is intelligent on the one hand and intelligible on the other. It must be remarked, however, that it is obviously impossibly impossible wholly to eliminate, eliminate mental suggestion even in the administration of mental remedies. Extremists claim that the whole effect of mental material, I'm sorry, the whole effect of material remedies is due to the factor of mental suggestion, but this seems to be untenable. The most that can be claimed with any degree of certainty is that mental remedies, when they are not in themselves positively injurious, are good and legitimate forms of suggestions, and, as such, are invested with a certain therapeutic potency, as in the administration of the placebo. It is also certain that, whether the remedies are material or mental, they must, directly or indirectly, energize the mental organism in control of the bodily functions. Otherwise, the therapeutic effects produced cannot be permanent. It follows that the therapeutic value of all remedial agencies, material or mental, is proportioned to their respective powers to produce the effect of stimulating the subjective mind to a state of normal activity and directing its energies into appropriate channels. We know that suggestion fills this requirement more directly and positively than any other known therapeutic agent. And this is all that needs to be done for the restoration of health in any case outside the domain of surgery.
it is all that can be done. No power in the universe can do more than energize the mental organism that is the seat and source of health within the body. A miracle could do no more. Charles Clouston, in his inaugural address to the Royal Medical Society in 19, I'm sorry, in 18, 1896, says, I would desire this evening to lie down or enforce a principle that is, I think, not sufficiently and often not at all considered in practical medicine and surgery. It is founded on a physiological basis, and it is of the highest practical importance. The principle is that the brain cortex, and especially the mental cortex, has such a position in the economy that it has to be reckoned with more or less as a factor for good or evil in all diseases of every organ, in all operations, and in all injuries. Physiologically, the cortex is the great regulator of all functions, the ever-active controller of every organ disturbance. We know that every organ and every function are represented, that they may be brought into the right relationship and harmony with each other, and so that they may be converted into a vital unity through it. Life and mind are the two factors that the organic unity that constitute a real of that organic unity that constitute a real animal organism. The mental cortex of man is the apex of the evolutionary pyramid, whose base is composed of the swarming pyramids of baculi and other monocellular germs, which we now see to be almost all-pervading in nature. It seems as if it has been the teleological aim of all evolution from the beginning. In it, every other organ and function find their organic end. In the histological structure, so far as we know, that it far exceeds all other organs in complexity. When, when we fully know the structure of each neuron, with its hundreds of fibers and its thousands of dendrites, in the relation of one neuron to another, when we can demonstrate the cortical apparatus for universal intercommunication of nervous energy with its absolute solidarity, its partial localization, and its wondrous arrangements for mind, motion, sensibility, nutrition, repair, and drainage, when we fully know all this, there will be no further question of the dominance of the brain cortex in the organic hierarchy, nor of its supreme importance in disease. The Lancet records a case of Dr. Barkis of a woman with supposed disease of every organ, with pains everywhere, who tried every method of cure, but was at last experimentally cured by mental therapeutics, pure and simple, assured that death would result from her state and that a certain medicine would infallibly cure her, provided that it was administered by an experienced nurse. One tablespoon of pure distilled water was given her at 7, 12, 5, and 10 to the second with scrupulous care, and in less than three weeks all pain ceased, 
all diseases were cured and remained so. This is a valuable experiment, as excluding every mental remedy, whatever, and pro proving that it is the mental factor alone that cures. However, it may be generally associated with material remedies. Dr. Morrison of Edinburgh discovered that a lady who had constant violent hysterical attacks had given her hand to one man and her heart to another man. A little direct common sense talk, in this case, formed an agreeable substitute for the distilled water in the other, and the patient never had another attack. Many seem to think only nervous, oh, only nervous of functional diseases are cured by mental or spiritual methods, but Alfred T. Schofield, M.D., tells the force of mind in one long list of 250 published cases of disease cured, we find five consumption, one disease tip, five abscess, three dyspepsia, four internal complaint, two throat ulcer, seven nervous debility, nine rheumatism, five diseased heart, two withered arm, four bronchitis, three cancer, two paralyzed arm, three weak eyes, one ruptured spine, and five pains in the head. And these are the results in one year at one small chapel in the north of London. What about the cures at home and continental spas with their eternal round of sulfur and iron waters and baths? Does the doctor attached to the spa in his heart of hearts believe that all the cures, which in these cases he cheerfully certifies to, are affected by the waters, or even the waters in the diet, or even the waters in the diet and the air? Or does he not think there must be a something else as well? And to come nearer home and into the center of all things, and the chamber of all his secrets, in his own consulting room, and in his own practice, is not the physician brought face to face with cures and diseases, too, the cause of which he cannot account for? And is he not often surprised to find a continuation of the same treatment originated by the local practitioners is, when continued by his august self, efficacious? And is it not the local practitioner, not only surprised, but disgusted as well? to find such is the case? Does any practical medical man, after all, really doubt these medical, these mental powers? Is he not aware of the ingredient faith, which, if added to his prescriptions, makes them often all-powerful for good? Does he, does he know, experimentally, the value of strongly asserting that the medicine will produce such and such effects as a powerful means of securing them. If, then, this power is so well known, why, in the name of common sense, is it ignored? It has its laws of action, its limitations, and its power for good and for evil. Would it not clearly help the medical student if these were indicated to him by his lawful teachers instead of his gleaning them uncertainly from the undoubted successes of the large army of irregulars. We are, however, inclined to think that, after all, 
a silent revolution is slowly taking place in the minds of medical men, and that our prisoned textbooks on disease, context, content with merely prescribing any mental cure in a single line as unworthy of serious consideration, will in time be replaced by others containing views more worthy of the century in which we live. And that's the end of that chapter. And this was back in, okay, so Charles wasn't, I don't know if he was alive in the 1800s, but that quote that he took from the uh, Royal Medical Society, that was 1896. Kind of seems like, uh, kind of seems like we should be further along than, than, the, than where we're at currently. Uh, is that just me, Adam, or what do you think? Well, I mean, that's still when the military, or not military, what am I saying? Uh, the like medical uh, industrial complex, you know, came in with chemical, uh, you know, solutions and pushed out all the natural solutions. So, I mean, you know, we're kind of still on that system. So I'm not surprised that that machine is still running in the background. Um, it does certainly ring true to me. I mean, one of the previous guests that we had on 13 Questions, Dean Radin, um, has talked about uh, experiments with nutrition where um, just having somebody pray over the food um, increases, or I should say over nutrition, increases in plants the nutritional uptake of the plant. So without doing anything else, the intention and prayer upon the food has an effect. And if you can affect something outside of your body in such a profound way, then yeah, things like uh, placebo um, start to look even more powerful on how they control. You know, we, we chalk it up to, oh, it's just placebo effect. No, it's placebo effect. Yeah, it's mental. It's mental. It's mental lightning energy. Heck yeah, look at what Wim Hof does. You know, the, the parts of his body and the physiological control that he is able to obtain um, is, is absolutely amazing and goes beyond just your, um, you know, your traditional nervous system. When you're being able to uh, shut down uh, an autoimmune response, I mean, that's some pretty powerful stuff. If you can do that, I mean, and it's just by being aware of your body and interacting with it in a certain way, who knows? Um, what other natural medicines are possible with just your mind as the the control box? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I love that Wim Hof stuff. I, I did some. I did three rounds of breathing today. Good uh, for you. Got about. Oh, it was over two minutes on each 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 retention hold. But uh, yeah, the uh, I'm going to be doing some Wim, Wim Hof stuff this winter. I think I'm going to take advantage of the cold, snowy north here and try some of that cold, uh, cold exposure stuff. I oh, did... that's awesome! Yeah, I I can't take a cold shower in Florida. Ever. No. Well, I mean, it's, you know, really? the water's going to be the temperature of the outside air or oh. the ground temperature. So it's never ice cold or, you know, it might be cold, but, uh, 80 degrees. Wasn't the water like a hundred degrees or something in the ocean the other day down there? Was no. Like a... no, 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 no. I mean, you'll, you'll, if you stay in the ocean long enough, regardless of the temperature, I don't care if it's 85 degrees, you're going to, um, uh, you are absolutely, I mean, you can get hypothermic. In warm water? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. What's your body temperature? 
and you're constantly losing heat um uh -huh. throughout that so i mean if your body temperature drops to 80 85 like you are turning blue buddy like uh you know you stay in the water long enough it's gonna it's going to affect you you know you're not going to have the same ice effects from like an ice bath per se uh, but over an extended period of time for sure man yeah i have i have absolutely turned blue at the beach on a uh on a not completely but like my lips blue and stuff right. on just like really windy days in the water when it's not that cold it's a it's florida right yeah interesting yeah i never thought about that interesting but uh what uh something that you can do that will uh is free number one and that will uh reduce any any inflammation that you might have is is this week's free scalar energy session over at uh mysticalwares.com uh, we're doing the anti-inflammation uh, frequencies so this will reduce inflammation throughout the body and this is a free session that derek offers every week all you got to do is go to mysticalwares.com click on the menu scroll down to scalar energy and that page has a whole explanation on what exactly scalar energy is so you can do some reading there before you sign up and like i said it is free you just have to go through the checkout process like you're uh, buying something but there's no charge you just have to get your name in, in the bucket so when the machine gets turned on uh, you're quantumly entangled with that particular rife frequency so uh, please go and check that out and uh, please share the show uh, i haven't been asking uh, any, any any of our listeners to do this since starting the show up until recently right so uh, share the show rate the show uh, help spread the love uh, however you can until next time, Chrononauts, Carpe Diem. <laughs>